be seated and shalom. So glad y'all are here tonight. And uh, what we're going to do tonight, just a little quick housekeeping, is we're going to kind of wrap up the series uh, on basically the case makers. And so we kind of touched on that for the last uh, a few Wednesday nights. Of course, had a couple of little interruptions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but we're back on basically wrapping up the case makers uh, series. Uh, then next Wednesday night, starting something brand new, where we're going to deal with the psychology and the um, uh, mor- uh, morality, if you will, of, of the Word of God, and basically looking at the psychology of the Scriptures, the psychology of humanity. In other words, where does love come from? And where, do, um, where does hate come from? And where does reason and rationale come from? Because you see, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was an atheist, uh, he said and believed that there is no such thing as the soul. And basically, psychology is the study of the soul. The word psyche is where we get the word soul from. And so, uh, again, psychology is the study of the soul. And the reality is that uh, many believe that psychologists, uh, and I know many of them and uh, work with them and uh, deal with them and I debate them and I'm hang out with them, uh, basically will say that um, you know, they have the rights of understanding the soul. And I will argue you know, that they've done some great research, but that the Bible is a book of psychology. That the Bible is the study of the soul. Why do we do what we do? That's basically what psychology is asking. Why do people do what they do? Uh, why does a bus driver, you know, kidnap a bunch of kids and go across the uh, nation kidnapping kids? Uh, why do a person become? Why does a person become a serial killer? Uh, why does a person, you know, want nothing to do with no one? Why does a person want to have connections with everyone? And the list goes on because psychology asks the questions: Why do people do what they do? And so the Word of God speaks a lot into that, and I will argue that because we are a body and we are a spirit and we are a soul, uh, the Word of God speaks to that. Now again, atheists are kind of divided on this. They're kind of divided on what is a soul. Is a soul not an existent? We're just a bunch of chemicals that are just reacting? Or do we have this thing called a soul? where we feel things and we, and we seek things and we want to know things and we interact with people and we want relationships and all these things. So next Wednesday night, we're going to unpack that again as part of the apologetic series as to why we believe what we believe, the study of the soul. But tonight, again, we'll be looking at continuing to make our case, being case makers as to why we believe Jesus and why we believe he is exactly everything he claims to be. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we pray your blessings upon us. I pray, God, you'll speak grace and truth to us as we come tonight to share your word and to give reasons for what we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever you're making your case, you're talking to someone who's a non-believer, they're kind of on the fence, they're a skeptic, they're an atheist, whatever it may be, uh, the first thing they're going to want to know and the first thing you're going to want to be able to share with them is the credibility of our source. You see, we have to have this sense of what is our source? What do we believe? What is our beliefs based upon? And the first thing someone's going to ask is, well, where does that credibility come from? Why do you think the Bible is a credible source? And so again, something we need to look at uh, as Christians, something we need to understand as Christians, a discovery that was made uh, about 80 years ago is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, we have a picture there, and I get to play with my favorite little toy here. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that took place again around 1947. And one thing we know about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that it is the six or 38 books, if you will, of the Old Testament. There's only 39 were found in 
in the caves of Qumran, and we have some pictures of that, caves of Qumran, uh, basically in 1947, and these scrolls date about 250 to 300 B.C., So to give you some idea, 250 to 300 years before Jesus walked upon this earth, these scrolls were being used by the Jewish community. And so again, the point of these scrolls and why they're such an important archaeological find is that again, it shows the accuracy of not only our Old Testament, but other historical documents. And so many will argue and say, well, you know, the Bible, you know, it's like got so many, you know, things happened to it and it like changed, you know, a bunch of times and, and like this person said to this person and they just kind of got all rearranged. That was an argument at one time. This stopped it. The Dead Sea Scrolls basically show us that our Old Testament almost word for word, line for line, did not get changed, did not get corrupted. Nothing was added or taken away. As a matter of fact, it's not likely, but it is probable, as possible, that some of these scrolls, or the very scrolls we'll look at in a moment, that perhaps even Jesus read from. Now, again, No one's making that argument necessarily, but it's possible because they're around before he walked the earth. So again, whenever you have, again, uh, several documents coming together, historical documents, Old Testament, scripture, Dead Sea Scrolls, things like that, this is called convergent validity. Now what that means is, is that when you get several sources, different types of sources, all coming to the same conclusion, that is called convergent validity. Whenever I write a report for a judge, One of the things they want to know is, give me the convergent validity. Give me several sources from several different angles, uh, observations, interviews, collaterals, uh, psychological testing, and I want all of this to kind of converge and say the same thing. Because if you get several, again, areas of information and they all converge saying the same thing, that's called convergent validity. And that makes a very strong case and a very strong argument. So about the Dead Sea Scrolls, many believe this is the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century that's still ongoing. Now, again, this began, if you will, in 1947. So again, this discovery was made in 1947, very interesting year, because it was a year before Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948. And there are some Jewish rabbis, some Messianic Jewish rabbis who will make the argument that, you know what, once again, God gives the word first, and then he gives us or gives the Jewish people the land. He gives the word, 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, In 1948, Israel gets their land back. So some will argue, many Messianic rabbis says that God continues this pattern. I give the word and then I give the land. So again, this was discovered by some Bedouin shepherds uh, basically in 1947. What's happening is uh, they were missing some sheep and some goats and all of this. And so they're looking around. And so they think some of their sheep and goats, whatever, go into the cave. And they're not sure what's in there. Uh, and they do a very wise thing. They took some rocks and they throw the rocks into this cave and they hear some pottery breaking. 
And they're going, wow, you just don't hear that every day. You throw a rock into a cave and pottery breaks. And so they began to look and discover that, again, in, this, in these uh, jars of pottery, if you will, again, going back to the scrolls, basically are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they aren't quite sure what they find at first. They bring the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, parts of it, you know, to various people. And they discover that some of the scrolls are written on what's called parchment or goat skin. Some are written on uh, papyrus or a really uh, thin paper. Some of the scrolls are written on pottery or clay. And they find one scroll, if you will, written in copper. We'll talk about that in just a, just a moment. But they find all these manuscripts and they find hundreds and hundreds of these scrolls and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts, again, written in Hebrew, written in Aramaic, written in Greek. And so what they discover is this is something unique. And so what they're asking now as they begin to unpack some of this is how did these scrolls get here? Because these scrolls, if we can see another uh, part of the case of Qumran, you can see, going back case of Going back, Caves of Qumran. Yeah, you can see this is not easy to get to. I mean, you have to make a effort to get these scrolls into these caves. And so what they discovered was this. The evidence points, there was a group called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes, again, John the Baptist, again, may have hung out with this group for a while, but they're an extremely educated group of people. They're, uh, again, extremely educated in literature, theology, philosophy, and law. They're very conservative. They want to live a very simple life. Uh, they're even more conservative, if you will, than the Pharisees. Think of it like this. They're like the Amish of the Jewish people, okay? So the Essenes are like the Amish. Uh, again, they kind of keep to themselves. They want a simple life. They want to kind of do their own thing. They want to be left alone. Uh, they are very religious. Uh, they had their existence between 250 BC and 100 AD. That's basically the time frame that they basically come on the scene. Uh, and again, in that period of time, they witnessed, again, the end of the Alexander the Great Conquest. Uh, they, were, they witnessed the Greek culture. They witnessed uh, the Maccabees. They witnessed the Pompeii. They witnessed the time of Jesus. They witnessed the time of the Apostle Paul. They witnessed the time of the Jewish rebellion. And they also witnessed the temple destruction. So as their culture is being destroyed by Rome, they did what, again, uh, many thought would be a wise thing to do. As Rome is wanting to destroy them, their culture, they take their most prized possessions and they bring them to these caves. And they hide their most prized possessions, beginning with the old, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. But also in these manuscripts are other uh, important documents. And so what they discovered since 1947, uh, again, 2,000 years later, about 15,000 scrolls and pieces of fragments of the Old Testament and other pieces of literature. Now, 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament have been discovered. The only book that has not been discovered is the book of Esther. And there's two reasons why they think that. Because Esther does not say a lot about God in, in the book, but Esther is also used for holidays that they would have taken that book with them to continue their tradition to use it to be read during certain holidays. So again, that's one reason why they believe, or two reasons why they believe Esther has not been discovered yet. But the scrolls date back, again, between 250 and 300 B.C. Now that's significant because, again, this is before Jesus even shows up. And it's also written during a time of what we call, uh, where another piece of literature was written called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint basically is the Old Testament from, written from Hebrew into Greek about 300 years before Jesus was born. The reason why that's significant is because books like the book of Daniel, 
are so precise in their prophecy that there was a time when some scholars would say the book of Daniel had to have been written after the fact. The book of Daniel is so precise in its prophetic fulfillment, it had to have been written. There's no way it could have been that prophetic. And then they said, no, we found the Septuagint. Again, the copy of the Old Testament going from Hebrew into Greek, and that was written 300 years before Christ. And so your argument that Daniel was written after the fulfillment or after the prophecies does not wash, not in good academia. So these scrolls were written between 250 and 300 BC. And again, showing the accuracy of, again, how these documents, these manuscripts were translated as well as handed down even to our day as well. So what is found in the caves of Qumran? What, are fa- what was found in these jars? What was found in these caves? Several things. Number one, again, the Old Testament. The Old Testament was found, again, 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament was found in these caves. Secondly, biblical commentary. The reason why that's important is because, again, there is a lot to be said, a lot of people commenting, a lot of academics about what they discovered in the Bible. Go to Luke chapter 4 real quickly. Can I give you some idea what we're talking about? In Luke chapter 4, very popular scene, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 What happens is is that Jesus is now about to teach, and he's going to say something pretty amazing, as he always does, of course, right? And Jesus says this in verse 14 of Luke 4. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So Jesus walks into the synagogue. He's going to, uh, because he is like the guest, he is, uh, you know, the the homeboy who has, you know, done well. He's back home in Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. And so the book of Isaiah was handed to him, so, or the scroll. And the book of uh, the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So then he, he opens this scroll, reads these words, closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. So basically they're saying, what are you going to say about this? You just read from the book of Isaiah. By the way, Isaiah uh, is the book, uh, one of the books in the, um, in, the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was the most complete and the easiest to read and the most preserved, which we found very interesting. So that being said, a little sidebar. Verse 21, Jesus says this, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So the point is this. Jesus at one time walked into the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. He's given the scroll to read. He turns to this passage of scripture uh, of the book of Isaiah, reads it and says, here's what this is about. This scripture is talking about me. And it's like, what? 
He says, yeah, this scripture is talking about me. I am the fulfillment of the word of God. So my point in saying this is that biblical commentary, in other words, what does the Bible mean? What do certain books of, of the Bible mean? Were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Caves of Qumran. Also, other what's called deuterocanonical books were found, like Enoch and Tobit and Maccabees. As a matter of fact, uh, Enoch, uh, many believe, though it's not scripture, many believe it's a very powerful book of religious history. And Enoch, uh, again, uh, many as they read it, talks about, interestingly enough, the Nephilim. And the Nephilim, as we know, were found in the book of Genesis as well as in the book of Numbers as the giants. And many believe, and many will argue theologically, that Nephilim basically was a hybrid of demonic and human interaction. And many will go on to say that's one reason why God had to wipe out everything and everybody uh, and Noah's flood because the genetic gene pool, if you will, was now so polluted, God had to wipe it all out and start all over. We'll talk about that more another day. Really, Mark? That was so cool. I want to talk about that now. We will later on. Uh, other things found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was ritual purifications, military strategy, calendars, uh, the Zodiac. The Zodiac, because basically the Zodiac simply is, again, the names of certain stars in alignment that tell a story. Again, not a horoscope where it will tell your future. You're going to meet somebody really cool today. No, the Zodiac is basically the aligning of certain stars that have certain significance that tell a story in the heavens. As a matter of fact, some will argue you will find this in the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Let's turn there. I've never heard this before, Mark. Well, aren't you glad you came tonight? I'm not sure if I believe you. Let's turn there. Genesis 1.14 says this. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days, and for years. Now, many of you have grandchildren or children. Remember this little jingle uh, from Sesame Street? Three of these aren't like the other. One of these are kind of the same. One of these isn't quite like the other. Remember that little jingle? I just ruined it, but anyway, you get the idea, right? <laughs> okay. When you look at what God says, gonna, the, the, what's going on in the expanse of the heavens, God says, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. One of these is not like the other. One of these is kind of the same. Which one is different? Well, seasons and days and years denote time. But signs, that's something different. The point is this is that many will argue that the Zodiac is, some, is very, very old, that many will argue that the satanic world has basically polluted it, hijacked it, if you will. But there was a time when the, the alignment of the stars told a story in the heavens. 
Because you see, for example, the Southern Cross, and you see uh, basically in some places the, the virgin giving birth to a child, and you see in some places uh, the serpent coming against the child, and, and you see these, this story, if you will, uh, from, again, some of these things in the heavens. And that's why some will argue, again, we're, we'll talk about this more at maybe a later date, but some will argue that this was how, again, the story of the gospel was seen in the place where the written word could not be found or provided. That missionaries and Christians and pastors and evangelists could get with people who, again, looked at the night sky and like there was their TV, right? Okay. You know, when you're living, you know, in the remote, remotest parts of the world and you're looking up at night, that was your TV, that and the campfire. Amen. And so you're looking up. And so there was this sense of look at how these things work out. And so the missionaries, pastors, evangelists, whatever, would basically take the story of the gospel found in the heavens because the heavens declare the glory of God. And so Genesis 1.14, many will argue God put this in the heavens as for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And again, this was discovered also uh, in the caves of Qumran, uh, basically uh, when they were discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Also, songs and hymns were discovered. Wisdom literature was discovered. Uh, and the, there was a copper scroll that was discovered that basically had, was basically a treasure hunt. 64 things uh, in this copper scroll basically talked about, you know, if you go to this cave, if you go to this mountain, if you go to this place, whatever, you will discover it had all sorts of types of different treasures. That was discovered in the caves of Qumran. So, What's the point, Mark? The point is this. What we have in the Word of God, we have what we call our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, again, is accurate, and it is complete. And we see the accuracy and the completeness, if you will, going 2,300 years ago, and it has not been altered, and it has not been changed. As a matter of fact, the, uh, Isaiah, uh, one of the scrolls that was the most uh, preserved and the most complete, says this in Isaiah 29. If you want to have your Bible and follow along, in Isaiah 29, we're, this is just a brief review. Isaiah 29, 18 says this about the coming of Messiah. It says, And on that day, talking about when Messiah shows up, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And the afflicted also shall increase their gladness in the Lord. And the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And so we, we see this, this messianic expectation, this messianic prophecy. And then Jesus shows up and notice what John says. We're just going to unpack the gospel of John. Uh, there's several other places we could go, but we're just going to look at the gospel of John, just one of the gospels. Notice what John says in John 5, 36. This was a little of a review from our last time. But in John 5, 36, we see these words. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me. The Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. The point Jesus is making here is this. He's saying, I am doing the works that Isaiah talked about. I am doing the works that only God can do. Uh, in John 10, 25 Jesus says these words, again, as he is Christ, the case maker. John 10, 25, I'm going to follow along. Jesus says these words. He says, 
I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. Just look at the works that I do. Verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So Jesus is challenging the people of his time saying, look, I do miracles. I'm doing only what God can do. I'm doing exactly what Isaiah predicted. So Jesus is showing the fact that he is the case maker of himself by doing certain miracles that only God can do. Um, then there's the what I call, you have Christ the case maker. Then there's the commission case maker. In other words, those people who follow Jesus, uh, Peter and John, for example, and we see them and what they had to say about Jesus. Here's how they make their case in Acts chapter 3, verse 15. In Acts 3, 15, we see these words. <clears throat> verse four, uh, we'll start with verse 14. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So here's Peter saying, look, we were a witness to his resurrection. We were a witness when you had uh, the crowd ask, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? We were there after the resurrection. We were witnesses. We saw him alive. We saw him die. We saw him come back to life, if you will. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So what they're saying is that they are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive, that they were, they saw him alive. Uh, This is not something they heard, something that they, uh, somebody told them, they heard from a friend. They said, no, we were the ones who actually saw him alive. In Acts 4.20, something very similar. It says, again, here's Peter saying, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. So again, there's Peter talking about the fact that we saw Jesus, we saw him alive, and we can't stop talking about it. We won't stop talking about it. Verse 33, something very similar. Uh, verse of uh, Acts chapter four. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. So again, they kept saying, we saw him alive. And here's the thing. People kept, tell, kept telling them, if you don't shut up, we're going to kill you. If you don't stop saying that you saw the resurrected Jesus, we're going to kill you. And you know what they said? Bring it. Bring it. Kill us if you want. You know, do what you got to do, but we know what we saw. We know what we heard. And here's, what some, here's something that every attorney will tell you. You get a witness that is that focused uh, on their testimony, that is that legitimate concerning their testimony, uh, that, that is that sure of their testimony, and they say, I can't stop talking about this. I'm telling you, you can threaten to kill me if you want. I know what I saw. And that was the kind of witness you had with Peter and the kind of witness you had with John. Uh, There's other parts of scripture. Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 39 through 42. Says this. And we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all people, 
but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Goes on, verse 42, and he ordered us to preach the gospel and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So they're saying, we're, we're his witnesses. We saw him. He told us. He appointed us. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. We are witnesses of his majesty. Acts 17 says this, verse 30 through 31. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everyone should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the, the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof, having furnished proof, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the point is this, you want to know if God's real or not? All you've got to do is look at the resurrection. Because here's a person who was dead, who came back to life by his own power, raising himself from the dead, something he predicted, something he pulled off, and something he proved, uh, as the Word of God says, with many infallible proofs. So again, so you have the commission casemakers. So you have Christ, the casemaker, who said, look at my miracles. Look at what I did. Look at the people that I raised from the dead. Look at the blind that see. Look at the deaf that hear. Look at the lame that walk. Look at what I have done. That's Christ, the case maker. The commission case maker is simply this. We saw him after he died. We saw him after the resurrection. We heard him. We sat with him. We ate with him. We were commissioned by him. We listened to him. And we're willing to die for him. Now, you cannot say that about any other person who has ever lived. Again, to have this kind of following of, again, people who saw the risen Savior, who saw someone who died and now is back to life. Then there is the canonical casemaker, which basically the writers of the New Testament, people who wrote down what they saw, for example, in John 21, 24 through 25. So if you've not put a verse to memory in this new year, definitely put these verses to memory. John chapter 21. John 21, 24 through 25. The last two uh, verses of the Gospel of John. And John is writing, and he's written out his book, if you will. He's written out his account of, of Jesus and he writes these last two verses. He says, this is the disciple, talking about himself, who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. So what Jesus is saying, or John is saying is this, if we wrote everything out that Jesus said, there are not enough books in the world that could contain it all. So basically what we have here, if you will, is a clip. You know, kind of little, what you see before a movie starts, a clip of the ministry and the life of Jesus. But again, John's saying these things that we have written have been written that you may know that you have eternal life in his name. Uh, Luke says something very similar in Luke chapter 1. We looked at this verse before, but in review, Luke chapter 1 says this. Again, these are the canonical casemakers, the writers of the New Testament. What did they say? Those who wrote, who actually wrote the Bible that's been around for 2,000 years, by the way. 
Again, something amazing that the atheist has a hard time explaining. But there's nothing to this book, a book that has been banned, outlawed, burned, hated, various groups, various parties, various governments has tried to ban it, get rid of it. And the reality is some of these governments and countries and leaders have come and gone and they're dead and they're decaying in the ground. And this book is still around. Now, I got to get an atheist one of these days to explain to me, how does that happen? You hammer away with your hostile hands. Your hammers break, but God's anvil stands. You hammer away with your hostile hands. University professors, atheists, communist leaders, you hammer away with your hostile hands. Your hammers break, but God's anvil stands. And so what you have here is this. In Luke chapter one, one through four, you have this. Luke's writing. Now, by the way, as you said before, by virtue of the testimony of archaeologists, by virtue of the testament of archaeologists, Luke is perhaps one of the greatest, most accurate historians to ever put pen to parchment. So if ever you just want to do a Bible study or a book study or just read through, you know, as, as much as you possibly can, the chronology of the, the, the life of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus, you want to open up and read through the book of Luke. So here's what Luke says, Luke chapter one. He says, and as much as many... Now he's saying, look, many people are writing about Jesus. Many people are trying to write some things down, remember some things. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were, there's that word again, eyewitnesses and the servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Luke is saying so many things here. He's saying, look, I've checked out the eyewitnesses. I'm writing this down. I'm investigating everything carefully. I'm writing it out in consecutive order so that you could have the exact truth, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, we're not sure who he is. Uh, many believe he was definitely a man of prominence during this time. Uh, some believe maybe he'd been, maybe been a leader in a local church. We're not quite sure. Uh, real quickly, as we are running out of time, Second Peter Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter second. Chapter one says this. Give you a minute to get there. Second Peter chapter one, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the people who wrote the New Testament, the people who wrote the Gospels, uh, Luke and John and, 
and uh, Peter, who wrote this particular epistle, are all saying the same thing. We saw him. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Then there's the continuing case makers. Now, these are people that you don't find in the New Testament, the people you find in history. For example, um, Quadratus of Athens uh, wrote a paper, if you go to the emperor Hadrian, about those who had been healed by Jesus. So basically what this person is doing is he wants the emperor of Rome, Hadrian, to know about the fact that there was a miracle worker named Jesus who healed people. And he's basically giving an account of what he saw, the times he saw and heard about this person, Jesus, who healed other people. Um, uh, Aristides of Athens, uh, basically, again, it says, hey, look, uh, I want to give an eyewitness account of the person of Jesus as he writes his letter. Uh, Ariston of Pelham talks about the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfills. These are just people who basically we'd call them uh, investigative reporters, maybe historians, who are talking about the person of Jesus. And then last of all, there's the contemporary casemakers. These are people that you want to have in your library if you want to get their books. Uh, for example, C.S. Lewis, uh, you need to get his book and read it. Uh, Mere Christianity is one of the uh, best-selling books that he wrote. Uh, Josh McDowell, uh, as a matter of fact, some of you are asking me who we're going to have next year. We're trying to get the son of Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, to come be a speaker. But Josh McDowell wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then he wrote another book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote other books such as uh, More Than a Carpenter and many, many others. But Josh McDowell was an atheist who began to investigate the Bible to disprove it. And while trying to disprove it, he winds up proving it, if you will, becomes a follower of Jesus. And so you have C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, uh, Hugh Ross, another atheist who, again, if that name's familiar, he's now a uh, astrophysicist who basically said, as I'm studying uh, physics, as I'm studying astrophysics, as I'm studying the Bible, I'm realizing the Bible is an extremely scientifically accurate book. Unlike any other religious book ever written, the Bible is an extremely scientifically accurate book. As a matter of fact, the scientific method, he said, is found in the Bible. So when someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible because I'm full of science, well, you know, okay, the Bible is full of science too. <laughs> because you find the scientific method, according to Dr. Hugh Ross, in the Bible. Dr. Walter Martin, another one, uh, Skeptic, agnostic, atheist, who again later becomes a person who defends the faith. Uh, Dr. Walter Martin was the original uh, Bible answer man back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. As a matter of fact, I will argue that Walter Martin had a great influence in my life uh, in, again, becoming a, a pastor. Uh, Dr. Chuck Missler, uh, again, a contemporary of Dr. Walter Martin, again, a great Bible scholar. Uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy, in my opinion, uh, perhaps the greatest pastor of the 20th century. Uh, again, founded Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 1960, was a pastor there for at least 50 years, uh, wrote a book that we have here in our library, and we give these books out, called Why I Believe. Uh, it's not a very thick book, but again, I highly recommend that you read it, have it in your library. And then, of course, the guy you met a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Frank Turek, uh, who's written several books on, again, evidence for the person of Jesus. But there's another contemporary case maker that we need to really, 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 really zoom in on. And you're going to like this person because it's you. You're to be a case maker. You're to be a case maker. Because here's what I know about everybody in this room. There's somebody in your world, in your life, in your family, in your 
sphere of influence that really will listen to you or really at least will talk to you or really will be open to what you have to say or really will be, you know, like, hey, look, you know, you're into this religion and all this stuff and I'm not real religious, you know, I'm not real religious, but you know what? I mean, you know, I mean, the, my, my best friend's next door neighbor's brother-in-law passed away and, you know, he's kind of a cool guy and just I got up and died and I got to thinking, I got to thinking about my own, my own mortality. You know, do you, really, do you really think there's life beyond the grave? Do you really think there's something out there beyond just this? I mean, how do you think we got here? I mean, do you think it was aliens that brought it? How do you think we got here? And, and, this, and this whole Easter thing, I mean, do you really think there was a Jesus who rose from the grave? I mean, do you really believe it? I mean, the Bible, I mean, my grandmother gave me this Bible back when I was, you know, 14 years old. And I didn't read it, I just put it off to the side. I mean, it's, it's an old book. It's an old book written by men a long time ago. I mean, come on, this is the 21st century. And you get to be the case maker. And you get to be the one who says, well, let me tell you what I believe and why. And the moment you say those words, you have an audience. Let me tell you what I believe and why. And now you get to unpack some of the things you've learned, some of the things you've heard. And here's what I know. Initially, there's a part of you that's going to be really, really anxious and nervous inside because you know the things you want to say, but you're not quite sure if you can remember all the information that you got from me or Frank Turek or the books you've read or whatever. But here's what I can promise you. I'm going to promise you this. By the authority of the Word of God, when you begin to share what you believe and why by focusing on the person of Jesus, the spirit of the living God will do an amazing work inside of you. And what you thought you had forgotten, I guarantee you is going to come back. What needs to be said to that person will be said. The point that you need to make will be made. Because God, I'm going to tell you, arranged that meeting in his sovereignty and his providence so that you can be the case maker that he has called you to be. And here's the thing, that may be the only time or the only person, but that's okay. If that person hears the gospel from you, if that person has a seed planted, if that person is convinced, if that person says, you know what, I never heard that before, but I'm gonna give that some thought, then again, I'm telling you, that's all that matters. God used you in that moment for that person in that divine appointment. And the reality is, that's how the spirit of the living God works. Real quickly, I've told this story before, but I'll close. I'm old, I tell the same stories over and over, right? For all of us old people in here, we tell the same stories over and over again. Are we good? Are we, are we good? Okay, all right. Real, real, real quickly, I tell this story, I tell it real quickly. I'll, I'll give you the abbreviated version. Long time ago in land far away, I'm in college, I'm debating this, this friend of mine that I've known for several years. Good guy. He's an atheist. I'm a Christian. I haven't been a Christian very long, but we're debating. And we're there, you know, um, in front of the dorm. And we're just, we're not really, we're not really yelling at each other, not really going at it, but everybody can tell this is intense. Okay. And I'm going to share my points and he shares his points and I share my points. And now there is a, a group gathering 
And they have this group on this side, like the atheists, like, yeah, you tell them, bro. And then there's other people say, hey, man, brother. Hey, man, you just keep telling brother. You just keep doing it. Okay. And, and so, so it's back and forth. And so, and so, so we, we do this for at least an hour, maybe longer, at least an hour. Wraps up, you know, we're tired, we're sleepy, we go home our separate ways, you know, and everybody's high-fiving him. You told that Christian, like, hey, bro, you, you just blessed him, bro. You just blessed him. And the Lord, you used you in a mighty way. And so back and forth. The last time I saw him, and then maybe 20, 25 years later, we, I, I am, um, I'm in my hometown, uh, Sherman, Texas. I'm visiting some friends. Uh, I run by my old high school, just kind of see what was going on. Uh, and they're having a, a high school reunion gathering. Uh, and so I see a couple of people that I knew uh, from a class uh, two or three years uh, behind me. And I see this, this guy. And he says, man, I got to tell you, I'm a Christian now. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he said, I didn't think I'd ever see you again on this side of heaven. But he said, when I saw you in heaven, I was going to let you know, bruh, thank you so much for what you said. (laughs) True story. (laughs) That is not a preacher's story. That is a true story. The point is this. You're casemakers. Everybody in this room is a casemaker. And God can and God will use you the moment that person says to you, do you really believe it? I mean, there's some crazy things happening in Israel. You know, uh, the FBI just came out and said, you know, that the Chinese are doing all kinds of crazy things to our, to our you know, cyber security stuff and all this. And do you think, you know, is this signs of time? I mean, what's going on? Can you help me understand? Is there a God that's doing something? And if so, how can I get to know this God? And you get to be the case maker. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you for our time together. I pray, God, your blessings upon us. And God, I pray that you will use us for such a time as this to be the case makers for those who are struggling and those who are doubting and those who are skeptical and those who are non-believing, just like, God, we used to be. But you brought somebody into our lives and we thank you for it to give us that faith and that hope and that love for you. So bless us and use us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank y'all, good night.